fans just want to feel like they understand the game, they understand the player, they understand the context, whether they're in the venue or at home. Again, technology is enabling that behavior. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I am your host, Owen Connolly, here to take you through another weekly wrap of news from in and around the sports industry. Hope you're well. Uh, it's good to be back, and it's good to welcome back Sports Pro Digital Editor Tom Bassam. Hello, Tom. Hi, Owen. Nice to be back. Uh, nice to have you with us, and also nice to welcome to the podcast once again, bringing the Olympic gold medal count up as she does. <laughs> Sports Innovation Lab co-founder, Angela Ruggiero. Hello, Angela. Nice to see you, on. Good to be on. Well, great to have you on. We have uh, a fair few kind of sports tech and related topics to delve into, but also um, with re- in relation to one of the other hats that you wear, uh, the Rugby World Cup announcements last week and uh, the plans that they have going way into the 2030s at World Rugby when it comes to spreading the international game. That's all to come. But first up, Tom, you weren't here last week, surrendering your regular co-hosting duties to go off to Dusseldorf for Sports Innovation 2022. Uh, how was that? Do you know what? It was a really, really interesting event. And I, I don't know, at, at Sports Pro, we go, to, we go to plenty of industry events where you see panel sessions and people talking on stage. And like, don't get me wrong, that can be absolutely fascinating. But uh, yeah, so what the DFL did with Sports Innovation is they did a whole first day of technology showcases, but rather than just sort of like demonstrating via a screen, they actually hosted three different football matches. And in doing so, like demonstrated all of the various different bits of tech that them, their partners and other people involved in the event are trialing around football. So you were sort of half an eye on the pitch and then half an eye what was going on in this kind of presentation area in front of it. And some of it was just like absolutely like mind-blowing i mean the the sort of stuff with the ball tracking and some of the sort of stuff around var which is not something i'm particularly like interested in overly like var is var but um yeah it's it's incredible what they what they can kind of do a couple of things that like i was most taken by i guess were but the more broadcast side because that's where my my interest lies a bit more i mean i like watching football i'm sure most people would do as well but it was like that joining joining up that experience of watching football in the stadium and then what they're able to do with their different camera work and their 5g technology to bring that like to enhance that experience in the stadium but also to enhance that experience with people at home so i mean like i, I wrote this up i think but there's a they staged a sort of a penalty in the in the first game in the women's game and just before the penalty was about to be taken and i think this is something Angela, you might be familiar with from US sports, but there was a little bit of back and forth with the player about to take the penalty, all done via a spider cam going dropping down into the into the bounty area. The presenter on the touchline was able to um, interview the, the penalty taker just before she took the penalty. Now, I don't think anyone is expecting to see something like that come into football anytime soon. We're far too traditional and probably you wouldn't want to get in a striker's head before they, they take a crucial kick. But I, th- I do think that's something that the DFL are going to play with some areas. They, they sort of said as much. That's the kind of stuff that was on show, and it was just very, very engaging as a as a way to do a sports industry event. I know that we're going to have uh, some coverage and a couple of interviews coming off the back of this, um, including on the podcast. But what were some of the themes that you were drawing out of your conversations there? What What are some of the things that people are particularly occupied with right now in that space? I think it's that sort of meeting point of 
the live experience, so in the venue, and also uh, making that sort of match what you can get from your sofa, right? So lots of talk about it's a very different experience, and then the sort of some of the technologies on case were designed to bridge that. And uh, the DFL have been playing with this for a, a couple of years. I went to a demo event in Wolfsburg where they showed us this 5G app where you're able to track live data from players as it's happening on your phone. So you point your phone at the player on the pitch while you're sitting in the stand and it gives you how fast they're running, other stats from in-game, but that's for someone sitting in the venue. I would say it's heavily data-driven. So it's about kind of just enhancing that experience with data, using technology to to enhance the accuracy of the tracking of that data. That was was sort of one of the main pointers, I'd guess, from the day one, which is uh, sort of, I guess, more experience focused and then day two i mean i don't think you're going to go to any industry event without hearing about web3 and nfts and the metaverse the way that was set up actually was was quite interesting a guy called shelly palmer a consultant i guess for the for the sports industry in the in the blockchain space gave a really really interesting like 45 minute presentation on that whole area what blockchain is what blockchain isn't what's happening in the the broader Web3 blockchain space that is going to impact the sports industry uh, and took the took the, like the, sort of the audience through that. And I don't think I've really ever heard someone talk about that in that way before. Usually at these kind of events, it's about this, this is what NFTs can do for your business. Whereas this one was more like, this is what Web3 is. Let's not try and make this out to be something different. You've got to then decide how this fits into your strategy. And it was a, it was a different approach to that kind of conversation, which I thought was refreshing, to be honest. Yeah, and I suppose deepening that understanding of Web3 only becomes more important in the wake of what we saw in the last week with the kind of the bloodbath on the crypto markets um, with a lot of assets being completely losing their value. And I think you've seen a lot of organizations in sport who've been very, very happy to uh, take the big bags of cash that have been loose in that part of the tech sector. But, you know, maybe now the time comes to investigate, understand what the real, real value of some of the processes is and decide whether it's for you or not, but do that from a place of um, uh, of substance rather than quick income. Angela, how how did some of those reflections correspond with some of the things that you're seeing in, in sports tech at the moment? Yeah, no, I love the recap. I, the NHL does a similar type of event where their tech day is a showcase at an actual game. And, you know, contrast that to the NBA, which has a summit where you talk about it. So, I, you know, when the you can actually see the tech being deployed in real time, I think sometimes you can touch it and feel it and makes it a little bit more actionable. And it, it, I don't know, it crystallizes what you, you know, you learn about in a lot of these presentations. So I'm encouraged to see other, other organizations are taking that approach. But yeah, my, my takeaway from hearing what Tom said, data is, you know, the new oil, as they say, and um, both from a fan engagement perspective, but also from a monetary perspective. And so a lot of these organizations are looking for ways to capture that data, to serve that data up to fans. The betting market is exploding here in particular in the U.S., but fans in general are looking for more access. I think that's a big thing. That access comes in the form of biometric data. It might come in the form of what you mentioned, Tom, the mic up close to the athlete. The PLL, actually, uh, Premier Lacrosse League here in the, the States, they actually mic the player on the way back after scoring a goal. So the play-by-play post goal is, hey, this is what I saw. Here's where the goalie went. This is who I passed to. And it's like, again, back to technologies enabling that access. So I'm hearing data. I'm hearing access. 
fans just want to feel like they understand the game, they understand the player, they understand the context, whether they're in the venue or at home. Again, technology is enabling that behavior. We talk a lot about that at my company in terms of like, what do your fans want? We look at through it along the lines of behaviors. And when Tom was talking, I kept going back to the fans just don't want to sit passively and lean back. They want to lean in. They want to interact. They want to learn more. They want to be engaged in a different way. And so it sounds like that access behavior was on full display, which is encouraging. (laughs) Going back when you were playing ice hockey, what would your tolerance for this kind of stuff have been and and what kind of receptiveness are we going to see from athletes and and is that something that's actually changing as perhaps they've been fans who've had different experiences growing up into the sport i think it depends on where the maturity of the sport is so if you're an emerging sport the athletes know you got to do anything to grow that fan base you know i was a, a women women's hockey player i knew we reached visibility every four years and then fall off the map and even though there's great hockey being shown So I think there would probably be more of a lean-in approach from those athletes and those organizations to say, look, you could differentiate your product from bigger sports properties by providing more access, by wearing the camera, by talking to the commentator in between shifts, you know, whatever it might be. I think the more mature sports that have more rights locked up struggle, and that's, again, we talk about innovation every day. They struggle to innovate because those athletes, too, don't want to do anything that's going to disrupt their performance because they make all their money on the pitch, on the playing field. And so there's a bit of a disincentive to like stop and cater to the fans while you're actually competing versus, you know, when the game is over, when you're have a little bit more flexibility. So I, I, my, my approach to this is like, I would have loved to wear the camera and show the behind the scenes. And I was one of the first athletes on Twitter, you know, tweeting about what I was eating and what the village looked like. Cause I knew that was good for the game. I knew that was good for my brand, for the brand of hockey, for women's hockey. But I looked to at today's athlete and it really depends on the sport too. Individual sports, I think are more likely to lean in and give access versus team sports. And then even within team sports, think basketball versus a traditional sport like a rugby or a hockey where it's about what's on the front versus the back, you, you again see a difference in how willing these athletes are to like lean in and, and be a personality versus just a, an athlete. I mean, that really is the question. I would have loved it. I think um, I encourage athletes. I encourage organizations. It's where the future is headed. All fans are demanding this. And, and But then you can't just like put a generalization out there because I really think it depends on the maturity of the sport and the culture of that sport. Does that mean then you think that sort of as a sport maybe gets more mature, it would that would phase out? Because, I mean, there'd definitely be an argument, right? So you get to, to the point, Premier Hockey League career, and you're earning X amount to play, but you've still got to do these kind of commitments, and you're like, well, this is actually detracting from my performance as an athlete here. There's not that requirement to do it from a case of driving interest. Or do you feel like there's sort of a meet in the middle? So the, the big sports need to kind of come down and accept that this is a thing? Or that the the sort of smaller properties, the less high profile properties need to come up and meet that threshold? Yeah, I think both. I think you're correct. I mean, the the athlete wants to perform and win. And most athletes make most of their money with their contracts on the on the field, on the pitch. But then you look at again, you guys do great work around athlete value and you know, you look at the athletes that are making the majority of their income by building a brand and selling product outside of sport, those are the ones that are saying, Hey, give me the camera. Hey, I want to work with my federation, my, you know, my governing body, whoever that is to 
allow us to do more and are, I think, are pushing the, the those organizations to, again, broadcast their biometric data. They want to cut. Believe me, athletes aren't like, here, take it and sell it. Good luck. They're like, no, this will increase fandom. It's what fans want, but you better give me a piece of that pie that, you know, as the pie grows bigger for everyone. I mean, I, I advocate that all the time. It's not a zero-sum game. I think it's it's alignment, I think, at the end of the day. So I think to your point, Tom, there's a happy medium. I mean, I still just want to play hockey. I don't need to be tweeting every shift of the game. But what are the mechanisms and how willing are big organizations to take these risks that you saw in a demo day? But like in reality, how progressive in a real game would would these organizations be? Yeah, one of the bits of feedback I got from that was I think they were probably thinking more along the lines of what you discussed, where it's they're coming back from having scored. It's a sort of downtime moment in the game. There's not that kind of need for absolute concentration because it's a, either a rest in play or a, the end of a half or the end of a game. Um, so I think that's where it comes. I don't think it's like in that kind of intensity moment of just before a penalty or if you're about to try and chip onto the green at the Masters or you're never going to get it. But yeah, it's in those it's in those downtimes. And I think it would improve the experience for people. In hockey, you have three periods. In between periods, you're used to like, okay, take a breather. You might get interviewed. It's that down moment. But I, I've been interviewed, and this is, you know, 10 plus years ago when I got a, I remember I got a penalty once and they had a camera in the penalty box. And to your point, <laughs> I was, I had a lot of emotions at that moment. My adrenaline was through the roof and, uh, you know, you're not as careful with your words. You can't just say what you're feeling. <laughs> so might be entertaining for the fans for sure. But, um, but go, you know, in those high intensity moments, um, yeah, you don't want a mic in your face. That's for sure. Which is yeah. why, again, I like the PLL. They just scored a goal and you're simply recapping what you just, there's a camera on you. You're not, you don't have to look anywhere. You're just recalling what just happened. And those little touch points, maybe, maybe the athlete that's sitting on the bench or, um, you know, picking and choosing more opportunities to gain access for the, for fans, I think is the future. Yeah. I think it's going to be an emerging um, or a, a continuing balance to be struck between what's possible, what athletes will go for, what's commercially viable. I mean, we had a couple of separate conversations in the last week with, um, you know, the the head of the National Women's Soccer League Players Association who said that they'd got an exemption, an exemption from data that hadn't been anonymized in their CBA. I think you've had Sport Radar coming out as well and saying they're going to be watching upcoming CBAs to see uh, collective bargaining agreements, that is to see which leagues are more liberal in their application of, of athlete data and stuff. And yeah, I think that's going to be something that we'll have an eye on for some time for sure. Um, let's uh, let's move the conversation on a bit. And we've had a couple of big deals in the last week, one which is happening and one uh, which is coming to an end. The first one is the confirmation of the merger between Discovery and BT Sport. And that is you know going to shake up the sports broadcast industry in this country for sure uh, comes, of course, on the heels of Discovery's much, much, much wider merger with uh, Warner Media globally. Anything that we've learned, anything that you know has changed your expectations on that deal in the last week? I think this. I think the sort of um, initial approach is interesting. So I mean, I mean, it's probably probably makes a lot of sense to the people behind it, but uh, not just going hell for leather and being like, okay, here's a new BT Sport, Eurosport combo. 
um, not just immediately bringing that into BT Sport. I'm sure that's got something to do with the contracts involved as well, but like not just putting BT Sport straight onto Discovery Plus, etc. So I think it's going to take some time for the market to figure out exactly what this is, what it means, how it's even going to work. I'm sure they've talked about it in the background, but I think on the front end, it's going to be a little bit while before it makes itself very apparent. I guess what I hadn't kind of appreciated before, and maybe this is my own fault more than anything else, but the sort of breadth of that, uh, the breadth of the the rights that they've got now as a combined entity is pretty staggering. So you're talking about a lot of tennis majors. You're talking about the Olympics, obviously. Uh, you've got the Champions League and you've got the Premier League. Like That is actually a very, very impressive rights portfolio. When you've added them together, that's not far off what the market leader Sky has. Sky obviously has got much bigger um, top pick package of Premier League games in the UK. But yeah, BT Sport has made a, made a sort of pretty good effort with those. And the Champions League coverage is only going to be more valuable as the amount of English clubs in that competition goes up. So yeah, I think it's just kind of understanding how big a deal this is, what it means. And I think over the kind of coming years, we're going to see that play out more and more. There's going to be another Premier League rights tender at some point. There's going to be another an Olympics rights tender at some point. And what emerges as a sort of BT Sport Discovery joint venture at the end of it can be very interesting. And whether or not it's even going to be a BT Sport brand anymore and just gets absorbed will also come to pass as well. The two parts of this, I guess, that we will find out more about over the next few years. One, we still don't know what the market proposition is that Discovery are going to take to UK viewers. So we don't know, as you say, what the brand's going to be. We don't know if it's going to be a standalone offer, if they're going to try and package it with Discovery Plus, if they're going to, you know, if BT Sport kind of remains the the senior brand in this because of their reputation within the uh, British marketplace. So all that needs to be worked out. And then you, I guess, have a better understanding of how that looks as a, an out-and-out competitor to Sky. And then, I mean, this comes back to a conversation that uh, Jonathan Licht, who's, uh, who heads up Sky Sports, had with our own Nick Meacham a few weeks ago. And that's, what Sky strategy, both the Sky Sports and the wider group, is going to be regarding competition and, and whether it sees itself increasingly as like a platform that you access as much stuff as possible on, or whether it sees itself as a creator of content that is going to be dominant in that respect too. And I think that's something that big media companies all over the place, there's all these kind of acts of consolidation and mergers and all this stuff happens are, are, are kind of facing up to. Angela, again, I mean... There's a little bit of UK specificity to, to this particular deal, but what have you guys noticed when it comes to fan reaction, the viewer reaction to these changes in offerings, the rolling up of these big companies, the fragmentation of access to some sports? And, you know, I mean, we've seen that a little bit in the States with, with MLB, for example, which has taken on Apple as a partner, which means that there's another service that you need to get in order to watch all of MLB. Where do you see that part of, uh, of the sports industry going? Well, I think on the one hand, the mergers and acquisitions and the roll-up strategies you mentioned is um, a benefit. Um, now you've got, a, again, a consolidation of rights. Hopefully it's uh, it's easier to access the content you want, understand where the content is. I mean, that fragmentation is absolutely a massive pain point for fans to figure out where is their content. Um, it limits properties growth in, in some cases. And part of that consolidation I'm excited about is also what I read about BT. They talked about their plans to roll out next generation broadband and 5G on their mobile networks across the UK. And I think that's pivotally important. Again, now you have a consolidation of not only rights, but capital that can lay this foundation. And again, I'm going back to tech because 
tech enables fandom. And when I see rights being rolled up into a group that can afford to lay out that infrastructure, that 5e infrastructure, then you have, again, the ability to lay so many other foundational pieces of fan technology on top of that. So in some ways, when I see, again, these rights, it's encouraging because it's easier to find your content if you're a platform technology and providing that access. You're also investing, as I mentioned, that infrastructure, which is so important in sports. I can't underestimate all these things that people are trying to build. You need that basic foundational layer. And so I read that about BT. I was encouraged. On the flip side, anytime there's a few competitors in the market, I get a little leery of innovation in general. And again, we talk about OTT and all the new ways that you should be, the future fan wants to access the, the non-linear content. And, you know, when you consolidate, obviously there's less optionality on the market. So on the one hand, it's easy, but it, it I don't know, does it limit choice in the future as fans maybe aren't there today, but some fans, absolutely, this future fan we talk about all the time, the fluid fan, they are digitally savvy. In some cases, they go to the digital networks first, the digital platforms. They're not going to linear, even when they have the choice. We, d- we spent a lot of time talking about that in our fan project report last year, looking at the women's market specifically. You can't be a lazy women's sports fan, so they tend to default to the digital you know, options out there. So... Um, Anyway, I think there's good and bad in this. I think obviously uh, you got more capital, you can do more things, but hopefully they're doing, hopefully they're taking that positioning in the market um, and and doing more and doing better. Let's move on to another deal. I mean, we covered this, uh, Evan and I covered this in uh, a little bit of detail actually last week, but um, it had literally just happened. So Tom, it might be interesting to get some of your reflections on the split between EA Sports and FIFA. I know that Steve McCaskill has written a very good explainer on the Sports Price site and uh, bringing all of his background from tech and gaming uh, into that perspective. Um, but you know, what what were your thoughts on on that? And again, have you have you seen anything since that news has emerged to kind of change your mind a bit about whether this is a more promising situation for FIFA than it very first appears, which is not that promising, and at least in the context of gaming. No, I don't think so. It's the short answer. I think this is a bit of a major blunder from FIFA and a bit of a Gianni Infantino accident. I think it's probably the kindest way of putting it. Pretty telling, I think, that sort of some of the quotes around it, like EA have clearly thought about what this means for their brand. They've already got their new brand. And when it comes to gaming, I think gamers are going to be attracted to what is the the best actual game. Um, So as long as that continues to kind of deliver i don't think what it's called matters particularly steve's example was uh, the switch over from championship manager to football manager and i think everyone knows that that was pretty successful um no one plays championship manager anymore and everyone plays football manager because it was made by the people that originally made championship manager so yeah ea sports fc i mean as long as the game quality is still there they've got that audience already fifa if they're planning to build their own video game or anything similar how are they going to, like, I'd love to know how they think they're going to do that better than the company that's been doing that for 30 years. It's, it seems to me just like, this, this, is, this is a sort of standard of like, well, you should pay us more money for our name. And like, well, we don't really need your name. Your name is important, isn't important to how this game works, but it's good. And, and what you've been left with is just like this kind of some vague promises around an idea of what's going to happen next. And FIFA sort of left looking a bit dumb. I mean, I, I do think it is just a, a case of a standoff and they 
had their valuations and, and went their separate ways. But FIFA's giving up a lot here because it's not just the quality of the game, which is, you know, over that period of 30 years, there have been games that have been better than than the FIFA series. And those games have mostly disappeared because they haven't been able to compete commercially. But it's the ecosystem. It's the whole community and the environment around the game. And you've got every major sponsor of football involved in some way. You've got big music labels involved. It's a lot to give up. And I think Bottom line, FIFA maybe have the opportunity to make some of that money back through mobile gaming, through using its assets in whether it's Fortnite or, you know, either other kind of big online worlds. But it's, yeah, it's very hard to me to see how they make up the kind of cultural value that that they'll lose here. And it will probably take years to do that if they're going to do that in the kind of football simulation space, years and a lot of somebody else's money to do that. You know, and there's other ways they could have integrated the FIFA community into say FIFA plus you've obviously got all these streamers out there who play FIFA you could have started to migrate some of those guys onto the FIFA plus platform and you could have started to bring those two worlds a bit closer together but that opportunity now is either lost or it's going to take uh, an awful long while to recapture I mean Angela I don't know how closely you were following that story but do you think that rights holders have a good understanding or do you think that there are rights holders who have a good understanding of what function gaming can serve in creating new fan bases and reaching out to new people and then, you know, putting your arms around the people that are already following your sport. Yeah, without a doubt, gaming is one of the best ways you can bring people into your funnel. Um, we, we talk about that time and time again, that it gives access and um, visibility into your sport in a way that maybe your fans haven't played your game, attended your your, your competition, but they know every player on the pitch or on the field or on the ice because they've they, they started playing your game when they were young. The other trend that I'm seeing and we're seeing is increasingly bigger organizations are, instead of outsourcing their content, their their IP, they're, they're increasingly bringing that in-house. And FIFA is probably one of the few organizations that has, you know, is sitting on loads of cash and could hopefully, you know, I don't know their strategy, but potentially invest in something. And to your point, they have other platforms. So is a calculated risk if they're going to be able to do it better. Yes, it's hopefully their fans will stay with them. Hopefully they can bring them back in into their funnel. So yeah, calculated risk on both sides. You know, EA, just looking at their numbers, they're spending loads of cash for, for the name. And as we know that the, the video game is really built around club competitions and less so international competitions. So again, I think uh, both sides of the table are saying, "Hey, this, this deal doesn't work." But I'm encouraged at, and and watch very closely the, the the big federations, the big professional leagues that are in trying to insource their IP now and uh, and see maybe the data that they can capture and the the direct to consumer touch points they can have. And again, versus outsourcing it and letting someone else control that piece of the puzzle. I mean, that's what we do as a company. We like try to measure fandom, look at the fandom. You need data to do that. And all of the big organizations are trying to do more of that. So I'm I'm trying to read the tea leaves here. Is there a little of that going on outside of just, uh, hey, we're leaving some money on the table. They're trying to maybe create some more creative control. So yeah, big risk on both sides. I, I'm, I'm following just like you guys. One more thing before we move on to uh, the latest developments in world rugby. Um, something you spotted, Tom, and indeed the team spotted because it's on the Sports Pro site. But this is um, the NBA and Meta expanding their activities around the playoffs. And this is creating a new virtual reality environment for basketball fans on Meta's Quest platform. 
called NBA Lane, and it's accessible via the Horizon Worlds application, which if, like me, you don't own a virtual reality headset, is probably all brand new information in all brand new words. But what um, what do we make of this? What, you know, the NBA is obviously known for its kind of innovation and uh, its, its willingness to experiment. Um, you know, what are they hoping to discover, do we think, in, in the virtual reality space? I think it's just that. I think it is just discovery. Uh, I can't imagine there's anyone going in thinking like, we need to figure out this via this platform. One of the things that kind of stood out to me a little bit about it, and maybe it speaks to my ignorance of, of the metaverse in general, but I could see how this works a little bit more. You've got these like playable games uh, for, for the VR users, and you're, also, you're in a kind of virtual game room. And the thing that ties it back to the NBA, or at least from my perspective, other than just the fact that these are basketball-themed games, is that this is also a place where they're showing NBA content. So um, there's, a, there's a big screen uh, in this virtual in this virtual setting where they're showing nba highlights interviews and that's sort of going on while you're in this in this metaverse space and like for me i was like well i'm I, like i'm likely never to use a vr headset in my life like I, barring um, some kind of i don't know bizarre accident I, I just don't see it happening but even sort of from that perspective i can see why this might appeal and there's not been that many things to me anyway that i've seen rolled out that I get as a like someone in the older generations and therefore for younger generations, it must make a lot of sense because like if I can get it as someone in their sort of approaching mid thirties, then someone much younger than me will be able to like, Oh, right. Yeah. That actually makes sense as an idea. I'd like, I'd like to hang out there. Yeah. And, and you know, these are the kind of environments uh, I spoke to Pete Hutton a, a couple of months back. Who's now of course um, head of sports partnerships at Meta. And these were the environments where he was saying, this is once you're in them, things start to make a degree of sense. And what you're kind of doing is creating a space where you're unifying all the kind of multi-screen experiences that people have developed over the last 10, 15 years and, and you're putting them in one place and everything's quite intuitive and you just feel like you're in a venue and you've got access to all this information and also the game. But yeah, I suppose, the, the again, Angela, VR is for a lot of people awaiting that penny drop moment. We've been talking about VR and AR. I remember five years ago, it was the first, it was the big shiny object we were obsessed over, and uh, and since we've moved on, but again, this news we're revisiting. I think there's a future for it. I'm I'm more bullish, honestly, on the AR space because I think then you can. We started started on this show talking about all the data and all the interactive features. Um, I think AR probably has a more promising future in my head. I think VR still yes, while you could give yourself a courtside seat. Uh, you know, I haven't tried it yet. Just for the record, I would love to try it. I think entertainers, if I can get a front row seat to a concert in a VR headset, great. You know, there's use cases for this technology, in my opinion. I think I go back to the business model, like who's going to spend the hundreds of dollars on the headset could do in the near future. Could we see a flip on the pricing model? So uh, you're not spending so much on the hardware. You're maybe paying a, a you know, a monthly fee for the software, if you will, and kind of the access point. So I think that's one of the biggest barriers to entry in this space. Again, Meta needs to move, you know, the Oculus and they've got to figure out a way to get that. Or I think it's the Meta Quest 2 headset is what they're they're using now. But look, the NBA, they absolutely lead the way. I'm bullish on anything they're trying. And I think that's indicative of, again, them, of them as an organization. And to your point, this is a learning opportunity to see how many fans are there 
relative to five years ago. I've used them before. I love them, but you can't interact with others. So if you're like a diehard fan and you want front row seats and you can't, you know, I don't want to get off your couch and you can afford the headset, like try it. I mean, and tell us what you think. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm always like cautiously optimistic, but again, I, I'm more bullish on the, the AR experience where I could be there, but have more than just being kind of blocked in that, that one, one size fits all uh, approach. Yeah, I mean, that definitely kind of aligns, I think, with my thinking on this as well. I, I'm always way more sort of taken by a and something that sits over the top of something that I can already see rather than having to step into something that I've then got to kind of imagine. So like, if, if it's just adding to something that's already there, that, that works much better for me, whereas opposed to um, having to kind of transform myself into a new place. And as you said, spend a lot of money to get there. Mm-hmm. That makes less sense. That's the metaverse in the future. We're all going to be wearing headsets in the future. It's just like probably not in the near future, in my opinion. We're not going to be there yet. There, people are investing left and right, but but the key to that is it's the Fortnite. You're interacting with others. You're not just going to a game and watching. You know, from your point of view, you're literally in you're in a universe with other people, and and you're transported again, not just something being pushed at you it's 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 that interactive feature that i'm looking for in in the future with vr um and i don't think we're there yet but again encouraging that that companies are investing in this uh this co-watching this type of community that you know we'll all be in we will all be in it in the future guaranteed it might just take a little bit longer (laughs) well we spent a fair bit of time talking about um technology and virtual spaces and and all that sort of thing but let's uh before we finish off bring ourselves back into the real world and the rugby world for that matter Angela you sit on the World Rugby Exco and last week uh, World Rugby announced the locations for Rugby World Cups up to 2033 so France of course already confirmed to host the men's tournament next year England will host the 2025 Women's Rugby World Cup and then uh, Australia and USA will host the men's and the women's uh, well, they'll each host both in succession. So Australia, the men's in 27, women's in 29, USA uh, for the first time will host the men's in 2031 and the women's in 2033. What, um, I mean, it's exciting, I think, for any organization to be able to see kind of the roadmap of their future in, in that way, particularly when they've got a pretty strong series of hosts. But what was some of the thinking behind that rollout and what was some of the thinking behind the succession of kind of major rugby nations and then moving into the US at the start of the next decade? Well, again, I think this is a a global trend you're seeing um, with sports organizations. You know, the NFL historically selected the site that fit the needs, the strategic needs of that organization. I sat on the IOC, the executive board, when we switched from giving the members voting rights to saying, hey, Paris 24, LA 28, um, you're now World Rugby again. There, a lot of organizations are doing this saying, what are the most strategic locations for the organizations versus leaving it to chance or a long and drawn out bidding process that costs money and, uh, and you know, it, it doesn't only always leave the best candidate on the table. So I think that was part of this thought process um, from our board and, and our leadership team, which was, where are the locations and strategic markets that we're looking to further add fire to and fuel or grow into? And, and if you talk about the U.S., 
rugby isn't, you know, one of the top sports here in, in the U.S. It's certainly on a growth path. And you see, you know, Major League Rugby, you see the NCAA adopting it more recently. Um, women's rugby is on the rise. I think rugby sevens uh, coming on to the, the platform in the Olympic platform in 2016 absolutely is an opportunity in this market as well. So you don't have that rich history and tradition, but I think an opportunity to build it. Um, you know, the women's game certainly is on the rise uh, as well. And, uh, and so by kind of putting the roadmap in place, I think we are World Rugby's perspective, providing that stability and planning. And, you know, you don't need 10 years to plan a world games, but you uh, but you're giving, again, the, the organization a time to kind of pivot our model to to delivering that. So this is an exciting market. I think I'll just go back to the American market. It's a it's everyone knows there's big dollars here. And if you could field a successful team, which is one of the limiting factors, you know, Americans want winners. And that's sort of like if you win, you get more viewership and, you know, your fans are more likely to pay attention. So rugby has to figure out a way again to not only grow the player base, the fan base. Um, we have all the infrastructure. That is, that's like the least of our worries. It's really, can we develop that culture of rugby, that uh, grassroots participation, and ultimately filter those players up into an elite team that can perform in 2031 and 2032? What's the significance of Australia going first in this case? You've got, you know, um, established rugby nations hosting back-to-back tournaments. I know while rugby were pursuing a kind of rotating model for a little while where Japan, for example, came in and came in and hosted the 2019 tournament. Was it just a case of, of giving as much runway as possible to the US? Was there a question of maybe once Sevens has taken place in LA, you've got a little bit more of a groundswell there for casual fans of the sport? What was the what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, I mean, again, I'll just play off the Olympics. The Olympics are would be smack in the middle of a 27-29 World Cup, a good good momentum, but uh, for the U.S. market at least, we could build off of the 2028 Olympic platform too, the sevens in particular. But you know, Australia is such a great country, rich tradition. Again, England, same thing. They're, you're you're kind of feeding your traditional fans, your traditional markets, and this gives a little bit more runway again to the U.S. to benefit from those Olympics and the fandom that will be created from that. Um, but also in developing a great and powerful elite squad, which again, as I mentioned before, is important in the U.S. market um, in driving those rights and driving, you know, the, the brands to to want to be a part of, of that program. And have there been many, I'm sure there have been loads of conversations between World Rugby and, and the national bodies in, uh, in the U.S., but what are the priorities outside of that, um, outside of improving the national team, giving this tournament the best possible chance it's going to have or giving these tournaments the best possible chance that they can have uh, in the States? Yeah, like I said, the, I'm not worried about the infrastructure. We always, when I was the chief strategy officer, the, the you know, the LA bid, we have a wealth of venues. We have a wealth of cities that could host it. So I think, again, the opportunity in the market is for, for World Rugby, really, and who are our partners is, can we now deliver a successful games and build off of the digital transformation you're seeing with, you know, our recent leadership team and really, again, convert World Rugby into a direct consumer federation, a federation that understands the fan that's delivering not just a great, you know, one-time event, but really can create a platform for that 24-7, 365 fan. I think that's the opportunity outside of just, uh, you know, delivering a great hosting event. It's can we build 
again, and digitally transform world rugby in time for that big event. Lots to, um, yeah, lots to look forward to in the US market. I think it's also really interesting uh, bringing it forward to the first tournament in that list, which is, of course, the Women's Rugby World Cup in 2025. And, you know, we've got the Women's Euro here um, this year, Tom, and and a huge opportunity and also, I suppose, um, yeah, a huge imperative for World Rugby to, to build uh, on some of that momentum around women's sport in England, given that that's, that's the one that's first. Yeah, and I guess maybe a slightly um, more accessible jumping off point for, for USA Rugby in in reaching up to those elite levels that Angela was talking about and the fact that USA love winners. Yeah. The, obviously, the Women's Rugby Union Test game is, is, is less developed. There's less kind of, you're not battling decades of Australian, English and Kiwi infrastructure there when it comes to the women's game those those nations are all doing something purposeful and they're all progressing but it's it's not quite got that same thing so perhaps that for, for the usa that's a that's a good place to start and offers a offers potential for a deep run because uh, i think that will be right i think that will be kind of the key to the success of this right like we saw with the world cup in 94 usa didn't do much and therefore football didn't really go very far until the usa got better um it, there'll be an interesting point and that comes back around again in 2026 but it that that is what it takes to make it there it's, it's not somewhere where you can just put a tournament for the sake of having it so yeah i'm intrigued to see it yes and see it we will over the course of the next decade and uh yeah lots of lots of dates for your diary there until 2033 now i know that angela uh, has got to go and uh we've probably kept our audience here long enough as well so tom why don't we just take a quick trip under the radar. Anything that you picked up on in the last few days? Yeah, well, it's a kind of it's less of a less of a single story, more of a theme. Um, so TikTok has again come in as a significant partner of the Euros uh, this summer, the Women's Euros. Our colleague Sam Carper has written a, a really excellent, a really excellent newsletter. Actually, like he puts these out every other week. Uh, really unpacking kind of what's going on in that sponsorship and marketing space. And his latest one was, it's not about the women's heroes. It was about the WNBA, but it was sort of highlighting the inventory that's there for sponsors and the sort of the opportunity that is perhaps maybe being missed out on at the moment. I mean, some of those WNBA teams are some of the most recognizable sports brands in the U S but they're not, they're still not kind of getting that same level of um, attention from from the market that that maybe they deserve. Uh, and he's, uh, Sam spoke to a couple of couple of people inside the industry, and one of them being Jason Miller from Excel Sports and Aaron Kane from uh, who represents a, a couple of NBA players, and just got a really like a nice snapshot of where the WNBA is and the potential there, and what that kind of can mean for brands who want to want to partner with those kind of properties definitely as well well worth subscribing to sam's sponsorship and marketing newsletter if you haven't done so already uh something i noticed um i think it was murray barnett shared it on twitter yesterday um but deadline is reporting the uh entertainment media uh trade media publication is reporting that netflix has plans to experiment with live streaming beginning with uh, unscripted talent shows and stand-up which it loves i think because probably the gap between being a stand-up who's on netflix and not on netflix is enormous but they still get paid a lot less than uh, 
some of the actors in um, in Netflix shows in a lot of cases. Um, but they're they're experimenting with um, uh, a, a couple of things in in that area in the summer, which I suppose suggests that they're kind of tooling up for the infrastructural challenge of of live streaming, and that has very obvious implications for people selling sports rights in the next few years. So that's definitely one uh, that will fire a bit of a starting gun on that particular market. Okay, we will leave it there for now, though, and we will say. Thank you to Angela Ruggiero. Thanks for having me, you guys. Really a pleasure for being here. Thank you to Tom Bassam. Thanks for having me, Owen. Good to be back. Great to have you back. And uh, thanks, of course, to all of you for listening. The Sports Pro podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. We'll be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye.